So what I want to do for this message, this true wisdom versus false wisdom, is I want to um, be a little bit lecturish for a second. I want to just kind of go through the text, just straight through. Look, here's the context. Here's what's going on. Let's unpack some terms. Uh, and then I, I want to zoom out. I want to kind of do a pivot towards this idea that James is talking about of true wisdom, um, the essence of it that we're going to explore. Then where does this come from and why does this matter as we come to the communion table this morning? So here we go. Um, the, the whole section here starts uh, with who is wise and understanding among you. James has been asking these kinds of questions throughout the whole book, if you've been with us. These sort of like hypothetical, it's like the spouse question I've been calling them. It's like, I'm asking you, but I'm not really asking you. I'm about to tell you. And he kind of keeps using this as a rhetorical device. But he is specifically calling out time and time and time again. Our home groups this week talked about this. Is There's a disconnect between what you say you believe, right? Our tagline of the series. The gaps between what you say you believe about the world. And this applies to you even if you're not a Christian. Like, there are things that you believe about how things should be, but so often we all sense a universal disconnect between that and then how we actually live. Sometimes it's issues of discipline. Sometimes it's issues of, of focus. Sometimes it's issues of follow-through. But a lot of times it really comes down to not a full understanding and trusting truly in, in, in the thing you say you believe in as followers of Jesus, we can fall into the trap of being all about, here's the list of stuff we believe. And that becomes like the metric of our faith, not how are we living. It's almost like we, we fall into Paul's trap. This writer Paul talks about how you keep on sinning so grace will increase. Like we believe that, well, by grace we've been saved. There's nothing we can do. That's the beauty of the gospel. By grace we've been rescued. And it becomes like, well, as long as I believe that fact, then nothing else matters. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, 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 when you live inside of that fact, it will actually propel you to change. It will propel you, that worship, that understanding, that deep reverence of, oh my gosh, grace. So he gets to the topic. He's been talking about the tongue. He's been talking about our general actions, about caring for the poor. And then today he's talking about wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Anybody know someone in their life that you would deem wise? You think of somebody, someone like pops to mind like that person is wise. What is it about their character? What is it about their information? How many people generally associate wisdom with age? Yeah, some have a propensity to do that. Like I need somebody really wise. I need a wise mentor. So wise mentor equals anybody over, and then depending on what age you are, right, it's usually like a 10-year jump. So if you're 20, you're looking for someone in their 30s. Right? If you're 30, you're looking for someone in maybe their 40s. If you're 60, you're looking for someone in their 80s. Like, we tend to just think, oh, well, someone who's lived longer will then naturally have more wisdom. And, and if you're anything like me, I think the propensity is to think about it in terms of intellect. Well, they have more life experience, so they have more kind of nuggets of wisdom, right? We think of, like, the person in the movie who just appears out of, no, like, the lowly janitor, right? It's, it's always the janitor in the movies, like the guy, like the really old guy doesn't say anything and then all of a sudden like the main character is like having this crisis of whatever and they're like, what do I do? And then, you know, it's usually Morgan Freeman and Morgan Freeman comes up and he just goes, well, I'll tell you. And then he just drops some like epic wisdom that comes out of nowhere and it shapes the entire story. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it, right? So I, to me, that's how wisdom at least gets conjured up in my head. And, and I think that in our culture, I have this 
I sometimes worry that wisdom is something that does not get um, given its proper due. In a culture that I think tends to primarily circle around Netflix binging, so like entertainment, uh, circles around kind of pragmatism, like get it done, what is the thing that causes you to get it done? And that's kind of linked with an intellect. James puts wisdom in the different category, which is interesting. It's not just how smart you are. It's not how much like charisma you have. So it's not just how entertaining it was. It's not simply uh, how, how brilliant it was. James actually says wisdom that comes from God is something else. And he uses this language to shape this first church that he's talking about. So the context here is James talking, if you look at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, when we first started this last week, is talking about leaders or people who are identified as shaping the culture in the church. People who are setting the, the, like how this church is going to feel. How this community of people who are eating together and being generous together and loving together and caring for the poor, how this community is going to do. Who are those people? That's kind of who he's focused on. And he says, first off, let them show, if they are wise... So maybe you consider yourself relatively wise. That's okay. I'm pretty wise and understanding. Who is wise and understanding among you, which again is a term just for like leaders, teachers, folks who have some sort of culture setting authority. Let them show it by their good life. By deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom is what the text says. So first word, good life. Uh, this term in, uh, in the Greek is all about a pattern. It's anastrophe is the, is the actual word. Paul uses it a bunch of times. Peter uses it tons of times. And it's really about a pattern of life that routinely and habitually manifests itself in good works. So by their like regular rhythm of good works, which is, is in the Jewish sense, it's like caring for the poor, the foreigner, the fatherless, being like, it, it really is kind of on the surface. There's no like mystery. It's like just being a good person as generally like adhered to by decent people like good works all right there's some depth to it in terms of a jewish context but how we would just understand this and he says a pattern of this that's shown then and he connects it to humility james does not tell these people to be wise but to manifest good works in wisdom he's actually in a way not talking directly about wisdom is so much as what this wisdom and how this wisdom feels so it's not simply about hey hey guys be wise he's like no who claims to be wise who claims to have it together who claims to be able to set the culture who claims to be a teacher all right so i says in the beginning not many of you should claim to be teachers like be careful of that and, and then he says this is what it should look like and James, in like a, as a good jewish man sets the tone in rooting it all in humility and I say that, and that's central for leaders. The, the difference when God is like comes alongside the, these big Old Testament characters, these people who have shaped the faith, the Moseses and the Abrahams. Humility is the key component. And he says in this text, um, the humility that's born of wisdom. The teacher is to do good works with a vulnerability, a non-aggressiveness, a non-boastful approach to life. Uh, humility can be a slippery word. I want to just define it really quick and, and move on. But David Brooks defines it as this. Humility is not low self-esteem. It's low self-preoccupation. So just to, to clarify, sometimes people translate humility or feel like humility must mean um, I think less of myself. And it's thinking, C.S. Lewis said, thinking of myself less. It's not being so preoccupied with self. And this was a central component for the early church. It's been observed over and over and over. Moses, again, was a character who was being criticized 
um, uh, about you know, him getting all the attention. We read in Numbers 12, 3, if you know the story of Moses, is now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. Uh, and we learn later in that passage that God then decides to speak to Moses in an incredibly unique way because of his humility, because there's room. Because he says, I'm not so preoccupied myself that I'm gonna like go and like put myself before God and say, I can do it, whatever the thing is. And we, we know this and intuitively. Again, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, something inerrant about that. We know when we're a little bit humble, even if we have wisdom, even if we're wise and understanding, when we have a humble posture, it, it's hard, but it makes room for engagement. It makes room for filling. It makes room for critique. So a quick observation. Wisdom and understanding are for James not simply um, like mastery of like an idea. So, so for James... He's not talking about how to get more wisdom. And he's not talking about, here's how you measure wisdom. You have X amount of years. That can be part of it. But wisdom for James is not, uh, Scott McKnight uses the term cognitive mastery. It's not being really amazing at a particular thing intellectually. It's not being the man or woman that knows everything about a particular thing. It's not the old janitor in the corner who just has all the, inf- that's not how it's gauged how much information they have. In fact, I never thought about this, but the old gender is actually kind of a, a perfect picture in some ways in terms of how it gets displayed in movies as we go forward. It's, it's the way, it's the behavior, it's how it actually comes to you is what separates true wisdom that comes from heaven and false wisdom. So, wisdom transcends cognitive or mental mastery of facts and information. So what then is wisdom? One writer describes wisdom as this. It is the skillful application of the knowledge of God to the whole. It is the skillful application of the knowledge of God. Why is wisdom important? Like what is it and why is James spend so much time talking about how these people are delivering their input and their wisdom? And I think as we go through and sort of look at what is the difference between false wisdom and true wisdom, we begin to find our answer. I know I'm just sort of charging through the text here, but I think we need to set the stage to then get at what, why is this so vital for us to think about. T.S. Eliot says this, In talking about wisdom, the famous poet, he says, Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. He's talking about how there is, again, a a separation, a disconnect, a gap between uh, information, between getting it done, He goes on, between entertainment and what is actually true wisdom. We've lost an essence of what wisdom is, an essence of what life is, an essence of what knowledge is when we don't focus on how we're communicating said wisdom or how said knowledge. So first off, false wisdom. I'm going to go over here and turn the heat down. Anyone else hot? No? You're you're good? I shouldn't turn it down? Keep it? Uh, Should I turn the heat down? No, all right. Overwhelming. That's so weird. How many how often can pack pastors turn the heat down in the middle of a sermon? False wisdom. 
If you, here's what the text says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, I can't say that word, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We heard about demonic faith last time. That's really hard for kind of 21st century people to kind of swallow sometimes. But like systemic, personalized, broken evil. Like it's actually demonic faith we hear is, is what? You remember this from two weeks ago. Demonic faith was, I believe a bunch of stuff, but it doesn't actually get flushed out. Like even the demons believe that God exists, but they don't live into that. They don't be, that doesn't become the life that they live. It doesn't actually take any foothold. And he's saying the same thing here about false wisdom. The language is unbelievably strong because James, as we've read, he's found this divisiveness amongst teachers who misuse the tongue and they have this zeal and ambition that's actually destroying the fabric of their community. An example, and I hate to use this example, I don't know the man, and this might weirdly be close to home, but it's the best example I can think of. There's a large megachurch in Seattle called Mars Hill. And there's a pastor And for all the speculation about what happened and why this large church fell apart, this particular pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll um, exhibited, at least according to his entire staff and elder board, created sort of an internal leadership culture that even though I've heard the man teach and I may have my disagreements with certain aspects, but he was a brilliant teacher. You can't really deny that. Really funny, really clever, really good with the text. Uh, Many people came to know Jesus. Uh, There's so much good to say. But apparently on the inside, there was an unbelievably, astronomically destructive patterns of disconnect between the wisdom that was there and how this wisdom was flushed out and the culture that was being created. And so uh, these terms I'm about to say, I'm not attributing to this man I've never met in a situation I'm very far from. But, but I will say that what we have learned very objectively is that there was this really destructive culture. This is what happens. We could probably think of CEOs that have tanked businesses because the leadership culture just became incredibly toxic. We, we can think of, of situations of family structure where dad and mom might be really smart, but the way in which the deliverable, how this stuff gets communicated is just awful. And so we end up valuing, well, is it true? Like the information being delivered and we don't I can tend to not then put much of a focus on how it's coming. So false wisdom, a couple things that James says, real quick. Motivation, the motivation that comes with false wisdom is envy and selfish ambition. That's what's happening in the text. Two, the characteristics, the characteristics of it are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. They're disconnected from God. And three, the culture that this false wisdom created was disorder and every evil practice. So then James Pivots talked about true wisdom. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So the motivation here, what's driving the wisdom, the, the, how it's being communicated is humility, we're told, and servanthood. And then we, we're about to read the characteristics of this are purity and community, and it creates apparently a culture of peace. So James then proceeds to give seven attributes of what wisdom is actually like. This is, this is, he wants to help, not just give random virtues, but he's like, this is a real church in real time, in a real place. And he says, look, the people who are teaching, the people who are leading studies, the people who are setting the culture of this community, how 
the, the culture of their family, the culture of their workplace. How, how, how should this look if it's true wisdom? And he gives us a litmus test. He says this, they should be pure. This wisdom should be pure. Wisdom from above, free from any moral pollution. It should be sincere and devoted. He says it should be peaceable. And when we think of the word peace, we tend to think like tranquil. Like peace isn't the, probably one of the most robust words in the Jewish language. It's shalom. It's peace with God. Peace with each other. It's peace with the land. And it involves like an inner peace. So shalom is a word. You should be a person of peace. A person of reconciling the difference between God, between each other, between the land, all of these things. Peaceable. Don't bring chaos. It's the opposite of chaos. It's bringing everything into its right place. You should be gentle, he says. The gentle person will not only like drop a criticism or drop a, a, a difficult situation from memory, but learn from a situation, strive to improve. Somebody who is, truly has the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above, is going to be somebody who is gentle in their approach. Then there's this one, submissive. Or, or another translation says, willing to yield. Uh, and a better translation, or one I, I think fits a little bit better, is like compliant or persuadable. These people must be teachable. If you're someone who claims to have wisdom, or you're someone who knows wisdom, like you know somebody who's wise, is it a godly wisdom? Is it persuadable? Or are they someone who is willing to adjust to see the places where they need to be led? Full of mercy and good fruits. He puts these two ideas together, which we could give a whole sermon on. But we've talked about God values mercy over judgment. These are people who are non-judgmental. These are people who, who by their fruit, by their goodness and by their patience, by their self-control, are people who, who allow mercy to triumph. That's what this wisdom is like. And they are sincere without hypocrisy, contradicting. Like there's no contradiction in their teaching and in their practice. And then so he lands this whole section, this whole text, if you still have it open in front of you. So true wisdom produces truth in truthful ways. He's saying, basically, be, be peacemakers. He says, sow in peace. Create a community of peace. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who has got their stuff together where they feel like they can impart any kind of understanding, where they are setting any sort of culture in their classroom, in their work? If you fit that category, if you know somebody who does and you need to kind of create a, a, a metric of, is this, is this true wisdom that comes from God? This is what it will look like. It will produce a culture. He doesn't say, and I just think it's interesting, he doesn't say you're going to have amazing, amazing like points. There's going to be amazing levels of information. You are going to be blown away. He's actually not even talking about that. He's saying so often, and apparently in this church community, he needed to warn them. And he's speaking to these leaders. Guys, you can't do this. You cannot say you're full of wisdom. He says you lie against the truth. This is about a culture that is being created. About a culture that's being created. So, this is my pivot. In a cynical world, and I'd say especially as New Englanders, I always pick on New Englanders, man, but we, we do have some sins, especially in February and March, let's be honest. Yeah, now, now I'm preaching. It's like, mm-hmm. 
There's a deep, there's a deep cynicism. There's a critical spirit. Anyway, I think we look at these things, this list, these virtues, submissive, compliant, willing to yield. The point is like just making like kind of peace. I think we can tend to sometimes look at this and think this is naive. If we are really aware of how nasty the world is, how much the world just needs, like just bold, true, we need to just, like any of these characteristics don't come off as strong. They come off as weak. They come off as wimpy. They come off, for, for some of us, as less than. Or they come off as sort of hippie, high-minded ideas. They come off as like, that's cute. That's, that's I, I, I think that's great, of course. Peace, man, yeah. Meekness, right? Depending on how your, your personality is wired, it actually deeply influences your theology, which is an interesting thing to think about, right? People who tend to have more aggressive personality types tend to gravitate towards certain theological traditions because they are much more like, <clears throat> and others who have different personalities, like, that's, that's my, those are my th- really specific theological, <clears throat> and huh. it's really, it's gonna work well for the recording. Where is James getting this list from? I mean, he's drawing from Proverbs 7. He's drawing from different texts. But as a Jewish person, the entire word of God is the wisdom of God. That's what it's called. This is the wisdom of the Lord is the spoken word of God. And he's saying, you leaders, who among you claim to be wise and understanding, claim to be culture setters, who among you, let them know it by your humility. If you have any other agendas going on, there is a problem. He's getting this from Jesus. Surprise. I want to walk you through a couple texts of Jesus, and I want to get at how Jesus views things like meekness and weakness and what that means for us as a church. Matthew 26, 47. This is a text that we'll be coming up on as we approach Good Friday. This is Jesus in the garden about you know, days before going to the cross. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, Judas, one of the 12, so one of the 12 disciples, one of the people that have been walking closely with him for three years. These are the people who are closest to Jesus. Judas arrives. Jesus is speaking to a crowd. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So he gets the religious folk together who are kind of in bed with the Roman uh, authority. Now the betrayer, that's Judas, already got a great name, had arranged a signal for them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, like like classic Jesus Yoda move. It's like, do what you came for, friend. He knows what's going on. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, and we learn in another text it's Peter. He drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put yourself in this situation. You're one of the 12 people that have walked with Jesus for 12 years. Here's the man who's the son of God. You're understanding the richness and brilliance. Thousands of people have come to hear him speak, and he spent his time with you primarily. He has washed your feet He has come alongside and led like no one else has led, like a servant. And then one of the guys 
who you've been journeying with alongside Jesus pulls this move, betrays him. So what does Peter do? This is exactly what I would have done. I can't even think I would have done it. I probably wouldn't have just gone for the ear. Probably been more of a direct plunge. <laughs> it's not in my notes. How I would have actually stabbed the guard is not in there. He pulls his sword out and he cuts the guy's ears off, ear off. Because swords are easy to pull out. Because we all have swords. When someone is doing something that hurts, when we're being backstabbed, when something is going wrong, we, we, we fire back. When someone cuts us off, we, we all have swords. It's the easiest thing to do sometimes. So a couple observations. Swords appear what? Strong. But they're actually, especially in this context we're going to learn, are actually quite weak. If they're going to treat me like this, this is how, this is what's going to happen. If they're going to do this, this is how I'm going to respond. If I honk long enough, the other lane will just magically open up. Right? Uh, middle finger for a honk. I don't know why I'm sticking on the road rage thing. I just clearly struggle with that. It's so easy to just pull out our sword and respond. Most of us do it automatically in whatever way that actually looks like for you. When things aren't going our way, right? And when we're smarter, when we're people who claim to be wise and understanding, it's even easier. Because we usually can be sharp. Because we're the ones who have the data, the information, or the power, or think we do. We're the ones who value right information much more sometimes than the delivery system because we know what's right and we know what's wrong. Jesus responds to Peter. He says, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's, by the way, a lot of angels. I think it's 6,000 persons, like 72,000 angels or something like that. So Jesus, holding an ear, says, is this what I've been teaching you? Is this what I've been teaching you? Someone offends you. You think you know what's right. You think you have like cornered the market on truth and you do this. Right, Jesus has another, another interchange with uh, Pilate who, who's one of the Roman governing officials. Pilate says, don't you, when Jesus goes before Pilate, we read in the text that Pilate, if you're new to the story, is literally looking for an opportunity to not send Jesus to the cross. And so and, and I actually really like Pilate. I kind of have a, I think he's not such a bad guy. Pilate, don't you realize I have power, he says, either to free you or to crucify you? Sort of like, Jesus, like, do you realize what's going on? Like, if you, if you defend yourself, right, like, if you can get yourself together, I, I can actually set you free. Sort of like, come on, come on, like, giving Jesus a chance. Jesus answers, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It's like, this is Jesus just being like, yeah, the little bit of power you do have, yeah, it's not even from you. And he's not helping his case. Pilate thinks strength and power comes from position and comes from authority. Don't you know I'm your boss? Don't you know I'm the one who has the information? Don't you know I'm the good Christian? I'm the one who's read my Bible and has the information. I'm the one who's wise. I'm the one who's wise. 
Jesus says, what little strength and what little position and what little power and what little authority and what little information you do have, it was given to you. Peter tries to appear strong and for a moment with the whole crew, like he appears strong. Jesus appears weak and he's actually the one who ends up being the one with the strength. Peter appears strong, but he is weak. In Jesus' world, everything is upside down. Everything is reversed. The crowd, Pilate, the soldiers, Judas, Peter, these are the ones who appear the strongest. And the one who appears the weakest, who let himself be arrested, is the one who actually triumphs. He's the one who actually makes a display, it says in Colossians, a spectacle. He puts on like blast, like how absolutely broken the world is. Jesus is teaching us with how things are. This is how domination works, and this is how the kingdom of God works. This is how control works, and this is how the peace of God works. This is just uh, being full of information, if we were to pull it back to James. This is what it means just to be right, just to have authority, just to have power. And this is what it means to actually use that power in a way that is good and true and heavenly. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, blessed are those who are broken and don't have it all together. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, by the way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are, who are just at a loss, for they will be comforted. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This word meek is the word I want to focus on and then bring us back to our James passage. Meek is a condition of the mind and heart. Uh, Spiro Zodiaci, which is a great name. His name is Spiro Zodiaci. Spiro Zodiaci. If you need a name for it. Tormies are here, right? If you need a name for your baby. Spiro Zodiaci. Spiro Zodiaci. I love words. A condition of mind and heart, he says, what meek is, which demonstrates gentleness. Not in weakness, but in power. Basically, it's strength under control. Meekness is strength under control. The way you've been living is that when they come at you, you come back at them. He's saying, you, you've heard it said, right? He says later, talking about an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said. Like you've misunderstood the text. Like when someone comes at you, you return fire. That's how the world works. That's how karma works. That's the systems of retribution. It's everything that Jesus came to undo. It's not what this God is like. Yeah, they come at you with this. Do not become, we talked about this on Martin Luther King Day, do not become the evil that comes at you. You've heard it said, pull out your sword. You've heard it said, raise your middle finger when the honk comes. You've heard it said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Resist the urge to come at them. Resist the urge to become just as destructive as your enemy. And I would argue that that takes far more strength to have control in those situations. You know what I'm saying? It takes far more strength to not be a cynical, critical New Englander in those moments. Amen? It takes far more strength. You are a much stronger person to be someone who is meek, to be someone who's gentle. Gentleness in our culture? I mean, that's like P P90X. That's like serious levels of strength and endurance. That's the person who is wise, we're told, by James. You may appear weak, but it's actually a sign of great strength. 
It's actually a sign of great strength. Paul, who's a New Testament writer, takes this understanding from Jesus, and, and he's got this thorn in the flesh, which is, again, a very Jewish way of saying he's got some stuff going on that's, like, not good. We don't know what it is. He could have been blind. There's, people thought maybe there are folks following him around and heckling him. There's a bad situation. There's a lot of speculation. We have no idea what it is. Something was going wrong, and Paul says, God, take this away. Take this thorn in my flesh away. And God responds, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, Paul says, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He's saying, when I'm weak, those are the moments when God has most, the most room to work. Think of some of the words that we use. Like, I just need to stop pretending. Like, how many of you have had, like, a, a hit bottom moment where you're like, I need to stop faking it. I need to stop. I just need to surrender. I've been trying to control this situation. I've been trying to control this person. It won't. This situation, this person won't submit to my way of life. My will is not being done on earth as it is in my head. Like I can't get them just, and I'm going to just surrender control. And in that moment of weakness is when what? We discover freedom and strength. We discover strength when we stop pretending. It's that beautiful moment, if any of you have ever been through AA, if you've ever been near an AA meeting, it's that moment where I'm going to stop pretending and admit my weakness. It's amazing what happens. There's all of a sudden a strength. Many of you know this. Like, here, God, you take it. And in that moment, you find strength. We get honest and, and, and room is made. Jesus is teaching, blessed are those who do that. Blessed are those who embody a meekness who no matter what they know, no matter what position of power they hold, no matter how much influence you have over your friends or your situations, in that place and in that moment, to bring it again back to James, this wisdom, let's say, that you have, this position, this place, how is it being delivered? Is it done in a way that is meek? Is it done in a way that involves surrender? Is it done in a way that creates a culture of peace and vulnerability? Or is it done in a way that creates a toxic, broken culture? Jesus is teaching, blessed are those folks that are meek. So who is wise and understanding among you? It's the ones who create a culture like this. It's the ones who create a culture in their family and in their life and in their household that is submissive, that is gentle, that is not hypocritical, that is pure. Imagine being in the presence of Jesus, the God of the universe washing your feet. And imagine for you whatever like the archetypal like CEO, awful like controlling pastor, leader, friend who dominates the like social group. Like, like the contrast of like information. They both, let's say, have the same amount of information and the one who is washing your feet. I mean, that's the one who possesses the wisdom. That's the one. The wise one isn't necessarily the smartest person in the room. It's the most gentle and peacemaking one. It's the person in the back of the room. It's the person who, who doesn't say anything 
is the person who has no grand position or place so often, but they are the ones who will set a culture around them, whether it's two, three people, or whether it's up front, that are creating a culture of peace and meekness, of surrender, of open-handedness. A place that is so stinking attractive to the outside world. It's so healing for us inside it when there is a culture of vulnerability. Because the thing about meekness, it's not that all of a sudden I decide, you know, I'm going to start living, living, like, you know, living in a non-controlling way. I'm going to start living in a meek kind of way. Like I'm going to start living in, no, 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 you already were weak. You're just like owning how things are, right? This isn't like I'm all of a sudden going to adopt a new reality. All you're saying in that moment is, when you're surrendering, is I'm going to actually just be honest that I could never control that person, and I could never control that situation, and I could never really control or really seriously set that culture in any sort of long-term way. You're just acknowledging the reality that you never had that to begin with. And in doing that, there is a wisdom, a true heavenly wisdom. A culture is created. And so as we come, I, I got to be honest with something. I was going to say as we come to the table, but before, this passage, guess who this was most convicting for? Like, like today, just now. I know, I'm already, I know, I, I'm already well aware. It's me. Like I, I get up here and I teach and I have had to look through this text all week and go, is this the culture that's being set? Is this the culture that I'm helping our other leaders set? Am I encouraging this and the, people, the other people who lead and who are wise? It has wrecked me and caused some serious adjustments in my life. Is this doing it for you? Will you let this text, which again, I know this is like one of the more like A through Z practical teachings. Let this actually like raise questions. What sort of culture are you setting in your life, in your friend group, in the places where you have, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by how smart they are. No, let them show it by how much they look like the person of Jesus. And then James says, here, you want to get that kind of wisdom? Here. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should. The brilliant pro tip is ask God. You should ask God. I know it's like the Sunday school answer. Who gives generously to all without finding fault? It will be given to you if you pray it in faith. Because as Christians, we believe we don't just need moralistic answers. As Christians, we believe we don't just need five steps to becoming more wise. That can be helpful. That can be really good. And we can get that from anywhere, from a Jim Collins book to, you know, I don't know, like somebody like taking the scriptures way out of context. Like whatever it is. We can find all sorts of steps and good tools, and those are all good. But as followers of Jesus, we first and foremost say, how do we become truly wise? We ask God. And we recognize that it is the gospel before anything else that is the thing that actually renews our hearts. It actually is the thing that comes from outside ourselves. And so as we come to the table, I want us to recognize what we're doing. We're taking like symbols of a dead Jesus Right? Like Jesus, is like his body and blood broken for us. The ultimate what? Weakness. Like he submits. He says, I will be arrested. I'm done. 
The ultimate act of weakness then becomes, we believe as Christians, the most pivotal, strength-finding, brilliant thing in all of history, which is the resurrection. That on the cross, Jesus displays in full character what this kingdom looks like. Dying for your enemy. Making peace, it says in the New Testament. Reconciling all things. The culture of the kingdom, first and foremost, is the culture of peace. And that is what is being set by Jesus. And so I think there's a slide up here as we close. It says, the, here, put the gospel slide up. The gospel renewed hearts and ibuprofen. So um, I want to end, end with this. I like stringing on like, things together that don't make any sense. When you get a headache, are you the kind of person who asks first, assuming it's not like, you know, some chronic headache thing? Like, do you go ibuprofen or you go, I need to have some water? Yeah, so a lot of us just go ibuprofen. As followers of Jesus, we need to ask, wait, wait, ibuprofen will kill the headache for a moment. But like, we need something deeper. We need something to actually fix the problem. This is just dealing with the symptoms. This is what we find at the, in the gospel. Before we figure out, all right, what are the steps? What are the people that I need to be careful? I, I realize I can be really hot-headed. I need a kind of wisdom that comes from God. Okay, what sort of culture am I setting? Hopefully some of this stuff that came up will begin to like impact the way you're living your life this week. Before anything else, we have to start at Jesus and what he has done. Remove the shame and guilt from our lives. He said, you are mine. You are lavished with my love. First and foremost, we need to begin that the brokenness starts with we need to have a proper understanding of who we are. Deeply loved by the God of the universe and rescued from our brokenness. The more we meditate on that, the more we drink that water, the less arrogant, envious person of selfish ambition we will be. The more our wisdom, our understanding will actually translate into peacemaking and gentleness, an open-handed, grace-filled posture that James describes. So as we come this morning to the front, as we come to the communion table, as we take the bread and dip it in the wine, a reminder of Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for us, may we remember the strength in weakness. May we remember the unbelievable power that comes from making peace with all things, that we would we be people of true wisdom, not false wisdom that is envious and ambitious and, and broken. No, no, a wisdom that is gentle and peacemaking and loving and creates a culture that looks like heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you acknowledging that we need renewed hearts and we come before you then praying Lord, we lack wisdom. We lack the kind of wisdom that comes from you. Would you give generously to us? That we would not just have more insight into a situation. That we would not just have more information to spit out. Lord, but that we would do it in a way that looks like you. We just want to look like you. We just want to be faithful, Lord, to you. You, you are worth following, that you show us what life is really like, what the way to be human is, what life everlasting means. So give us insight, Lord, today as we ask for that sort of wisdom, for the conviction that's already been brought up in our hearts, Lord, would we focus on that? 
Would we identify where we have just, just been, been people of just nastiness, of criticism, of digs, of sarcasm, where we need to be people of life. In your name we pray. Amen.